and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. Today, it's my pleasure to be interviewing my colleague, Dr. Ian Hutchison. Ian works as a research affiliate at the University of Glasgow, where his work focuses on the history of medicine and disability. Ian, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to start by asking, how did you get involved in disability history? Hi, Caroline. Uh, thanks, firstly, for the invitation to join you on this podcast. And uh, my first answer is a bit of a long-winded one. Um, I was a late starter in, uh, in academia. I had a previous life before that. Um, and uh, when I was doing my undergraduate degree, we were leading up to the time when we had to think about a dissertation topic. Uh, Despite four years of advance warning to think about this, uh, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Uh, ultimately, I started investigating uh, the possibilities of lead mining in Scotland. Uh, in the course of doing that, looking at an archive, finding material that was all over the place, there was no easily identifiable theme, um, I was just starting to get my head around the way it might be approached when I had some overseas visitors. So I was doing the tourist bit around Glasgow with them, uh, showing them the sites. Um, and one of the places we went to on a Sunday morning uh, was to Glasgow Cathedral. Um, when we arrived at the cathedral, uh, there was a service taking place. And while we could have wandered around, because it's a big building, um, we decided to kill time until uh, the service was over and come back later. Now, behind the cathedral um, is a garden cemetery, it's called the Necropolis, a garden cemetery uh, that started in the 1830s and 1840s. Um, and it was on the site of a, an old quarry, a worked quarry, which had left a big hole in the ground. Uh, no one knew, knew what to do with it, uh, and it eventually became the site of a cemetery. Now, because it's a quarry, it was up a hillside, and um, it was constructed kind of, or interments, graves, were all layered in like a hierarchy. So up at the very top, you had very ornate tombstones. And then as you go further down, uh, they become much more... Uh, plain slabs, and indeed at the back there's even a, a pauper area which is just plain grass. Um, so I was uh, taking my friends around this cemetery, and in the course of that, on the lower levels, I noticed this stone, which uh, plain stone, and it seemed to have, well, I don't know, 20 odd names on it, maybe more. And I thought, my goodness, they've got an awful lot of bodies into that small area. Um, I went over to have a closer look. I put my hand on the top of the stone, and my fingers sort of going over the top of the stone uh, found more inscriptions on the other side. So I went round to the back, and there were over 40 interments uh, in this grave. And then the question is, how did they get all these bodies in this small area? Um, well, the answer was that uh, this grave belonged to an institution uh, called East Park Home. Now, East Park Home uh, opened in 1874. Um, it was a response to the 1872 Education Scotland Act, which 
brought in compulsory education. Um, and with compulsory education came school attendance officers um, who went around looking for children who weren't turning up for school. Uh, and in the course of the school attendance officers' work, uh, they had names of children, but they found that these were children mainly with uh, very serious phys physical disabilities who were hidden away in poor homes. Uh, they were out of sight and out of mind. Uh, an organisation was set up uh, to try and attend to these children in various ways. And it was meant to be a, a, an outdoor type of organization, but uh, uh, some of the children were so, so severely uh, disabled, and indeed many of them that they were finding at that time were actually in a terminal situation. They were dying. Um, uh, they set up a residential home, and that opened in 1874. So this tombstone, had been set up by the home. Uh, and uh, the explanation for the large number of interments was that uh, many of them were very, very small children. That's, that's how they had got so many children into this uh, small uh, plot of land. Um, the children interred, I think, dated from about 1880. I don't know what happened before that. They maybe went to pauper graves. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought to myself, these children came from the poorest of homes. They would have ended up in pauper graves had they died at home. So uh, on the one hand, I was thinking, well, that's nice that these children are commemorated when otherwise they wouldn't have been. But the cynical side to me um, thought, this, this is a gravestone, but it's actually a big billboard. It's a big poster uh, um, uh, carved out of stone. Because this was, as I say, a garden cemetery. It was the uh, type of cemetery where uh, the city elites, the well-off people in the city, would come and promenade uh, on a Sunday. And they would look at the inscriptions to the good and the great of the city who were buried there. What this stone was actually saying, here's a worthwhile charity. Look at these poor children. Give us some money. Hmm. That's about. So that piqued my interest uh, in learning a bit more of what was behind uh, this grave, if you like. Um, I went to the, the city archives uh, to see what information they had, and it looked as if the whole idea of maybe pursuing a further uh, was going to fall flat because they just had a couple of very small items there, and I thought, you know, there's, there's nothing here that I can work on. Um, but uh, the archivist said, oh, uh, while you're here, hang on, um, there's some volumes of annual reports that have not been catalogued. Do you want to have a look at those as well? Wow. Um, uh, you know, having gone through the catalogue and only found two small items. Um, so uh, these annual reports were produced. Um, and uh, I then found you know, there's a good body of material in that. And uh, I then approached the home, which uh, uh, has evolved and still exists uh, in a new format. Uh, they also had annual reports and kind of filled in the gaps mm. with those of the archive. So suddenly I had material to work uh, with. Now, 
as I started working on this material, the thing that struck me about uh, the reports was that uh, the children uh, that this home catered for um, were really very much marginalised. Uh, it sometimes quoted children, but I think the, those quotes were often fabrications because uh, the quotes that were given were not the way children uh, living in the, the wines and in the cellars of uh, the poorest part of the city would speak. Um, um, so that got me into it, but it also got me uh, further into it, if you like, by saying, seeing that the people who should be at the centre of the story were actually uh, almost dismissed from it, you know. Uh, the, uh, and this is a theme that has uh, been found in many other sources over the years too. I think we all experience it where you get a lot of information about uh, philanthropists, about educators, about clinicians, um, and the people who should be at the centre of the story uh, rarely get a word in. Um, it's a long-winded introduction to it, but uh, that's how I got into disability history. Mm. No, there's a really important point you're making there about how disability history has often been hidden or erased or distorted in and from archives. And uh, it's important that you bring that up. So I appreciate that. So the research that you're discussing, now that became the foundation for your PhD, is that right? Um, I used that. I used the home uh, uh, for my uh, undergraduate uh, dissertation, um, and uh, then I went on to do a PhD. And uh, I, if you like, I expanded that theme so that it, it was not just um, uh, children but adults. It wasn't just physical impairment, which this home primarily focused on, uh, although not solely in its early days. Uh, and also expanding the time period because uh, the undergraduate project ran from uh, the 1870s uh, up until 1913-14. So the time period when I went on to do the PhD was to cover the long 19th century, you know, from the late 18th century through to the early 20th century and uh, incorporating two uh, it was a very broad sweep I took because I, I looked at uh, uh, physical impairment, uh, mental impairment, uh, sensory impairment, uh, and how uh, these different impairments kind of interwove each, with each other and how they were responded to in different ways. Uh, and also, uh, I hope, recognising that uh, uh, no single impairment uh, for many people actually was there in isolation. Uh, there were often multiple impairments, uh, one affecting the other, one resulting from the other. Uh, mm -hmm. okay. So the result of that project was your book, A History of Disability in 19th Century Scotland, is that right? Yes, uh, that came out of the PhD. Um, I should mention, uh, a person who we both uh, know well and many other uh, historians of disability will know well, uh, I should mention Penny Richards. Because when I began uh, on the PhD project, uh, 
I was very much looking for uh, things that told the experience of disability. Um, because this was gnawing away at me. You don't get it often in, in the official sources. Um, and uh, it was just sort of, if you like, through a casual conversation, uh, Penny contacted me because uh, um, I was here in Scotland and because she had uh, got correspondence letters um, from an ancestor uh, in Scotland and a conversation developed mm -hmm. and uh, uh, the, the letters which uh, Penny had uh, and which she very generously made, uh, let me make uh, uh, a lot of use uh, uh, of um, it really uh, gave me a, a lovely case study of different mm -hmm. types of uh, disability uh, in one particular individual, uh, a lady called Marion Brown. Um, and indeed, she experienced circumstances um, of physical impairment, of sensory impairment, um, but there were conditions that, you know, they, they came and went um, and were actually very difficult to explain. So it also raised questions of, of you know, how do you define disability? Mm -hmm. um, they also highlighted... Uh, as you've found in other sources as well, there's almost a kind of hierarchy uh, in disability. Uh, now, Marion Brown wrote in one of her letters, you know, that I've, uh, I've, not, uh, I've lost my sight for several weeks. Uh, I've not been able to move about. But things could be worse because at least my mind's sound, you know. Um, and you get this in other sources too. People who have sight loss, uh, are, are quite often uh, found saying, well, it, 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 at least it's not as bad as losing my hearing. Mm -hmm. And people with hearing loss are saying, well, at least it's, you know, uh, um, you get this debate between uh, sight loss and hearing loss as to which is the worst affliction. And also how attention has focused on different impairments has been a gradual progression over time. Um, uh, interest in sensory impairment from the late 18th century, uh, increasing interest in mental impairment, uh, you know, from the sort of first third, if you like, of the uh, uh, of the 19th century. Um, physical impairment doesn't really get a lot of attention until uh, quite late in the 19th century, with maybe the exception of certain very specific uh, conditions uh, that uh, uh, people focused on, like you know, leprosy or something like that. You know, very, very specific things. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Those are some important thematic points in in disability history. Looking at um, the the hierarchies of sort of stigma in disability, asking the question what constitutes mm -hmm. disability, and also as you mentioned, sort of where experts choose to place their attention. Mm -hmm. so thanks for for drawing our attention to that. And to sort of push this even a little bit further, what is unique, if anything, about the history of disability in Scotland? Because that was obviously the focus of your project. Well, um, I think some of the things that come out maybe suggest a uniqueness which is, uh, is related to the, the sort of cultural condition that Scotland is in at, at that time, the time I work on. 
Um, and perhaps that's particularly the case in terms of uh, Scotland's religious outlook in, in the 19th century. Uh, religion uh, goes very much hand in glove um, with the different philanthropic schemes uh, that were set up by uh, well-intentioned people, I, I tend to call them interventionists, but uh, well-intentioned people, they were driven, I think, very much by religious beliefs. And it was a period in time where uh, there might have been different strands to uh, religious affiliation, but everyone had a religion. It was expected they had a religion. Everyone had to have a religious label of, of some sort. And um, quite a lot of the uh, people that were heavily involved, uh, the interventionists who dedicated big chunks of their lives to different impairments, they often had a, a religious uh, agenda. Um, for example, those involved with, uh, with blind people, uh, uh, they were motivated because they were horrified that blind people could not read the Bible. Uh, you know, they couldn't read the word of God. This was terrible. Um, and you could have a similar thing with deaf people. They, you know, they, 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 can't, they can't hear the, the, the ministers, the clergymen preaching. So they're being denied and their, their life is being, the lives are being uh, doubly devalued, both by sensory loss um, and by uh, being debarred from, uh, um, you know, religious teachings. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe, it's, it's a theme that's certainly current, uh, I think, in, certainly across the Western world, if not beyond, but it has a strand to it in Scotland. Um, but also, on the other hand, uh, I find it quite interesting that in the 19th century, uh, you know, before the age of air travel and so forth, when journeys were uh, to other countries were uh, arduous affairs and took a long time, there was nonetheless a lot of interchange. Uh, you know, asylum superintendents would go off on a three-month study tour to see what their counterparts were doing in Europe and uh, the USA and Canada and, and so forth. Um, so there, there was quite an international flavour um, to the intervention in, in disability uh, by the people who, if you like, held the power, um, such as uh, the big philanthropists, the, 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 the asylum superintendents, the, the big educators, uh, people involved in the deaf uh, communities and surrounding the different debates about what was the most... Uh, effective form of uh, communication that should be developed for, for deaf people and so on. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. Very interesting to know that Scotland was so embedded in the kind of larger intellectual and medical culture around disability in this period. I'm going to um, skip ahead a little bit actually to our the questions that I drafted up about the Royal National Institute for the Blind, since you brought up this issue of religion and missions, um, making sure that blind people have access to religious texts, for example. And you were involved with this project with the Royal National Institute for the Blind Scotland. So can you tell us about what this was? How did it get started? Yes, surely. Um, okay. Uh, 
In Scotland, if you like, uh, and again, I suspect this is repeated elsewhere, but in Scotland, if, uh, in the Victorian period, um, blind people were either catered for by blind asylums and workshops. Uh, now, uh, some of the blind asylums also had, uh, no, uh, they were places of work uh, for some people, but not places of residence. So they had out workers came to work in the workshops um, uh, for blind people as well as people living there. Now, the very fact they had workshops, these were people who were regarded, if you like, as able-bodied blind. They could earn a living, uh, although it was uh, ultimately in the sort of stereotyped uh, crafts of cane weaving and uh, basket weaving, carpet weaving, that kind of thing. Um, there were also um, people who were blind, who had sight loss, who were seen, if you like, as non-productive. Uh, they might be the, the disabled blind, if you like, disabled from working. And um, separate organizations sprung up to cater for what they identified as the outdoor blind people. And that was people who were not affiliated to, uh, to an institution. Um, now again, uh, the first one uh, was in Edinburgh, uh, uh, our capital city and uh, serve both the city and uh, some of the, the neighboring counties. Um, and that was an instance where it was driven by uh, uh, a missionary uh, who was set up in this. It was very much about going out and uh, visiting blind people in their homes, teaching them to uh, read, uh, raise type and uh, for the first four or five decades, that was focused on the moon system. Mm. Um, it gave way to Braille around about the turn of the 20th century. Um, and uh, yes, they were, uh, and in teaching them to read, it was teaching them to read the Bible, it was teaching them to read uh, uh, religious stories, if you like, parables or whatever. Um, and it was only through time. Uh, that uh, they were persuaded to widen the reading curriculum a little bit, uh, that people just didn't want to read that kind of stuff. So you would get some of the, the great novels being uh, uh, put into race type and so forth. But but yes, their agenda was, uh, um, you know, it was a mixture of, I suppose, on the one hand, give them credit, they wanted to do good, they wanted to help people who were living isolated lives, um, but they, they had this uh, religious agenda. Now, uh, and similar organisations uh, were spread out across Scotland uh, from about the 1860s to the late uh, 19th century, so that the whole country was eventually covered. Um, as it became a bigger organisation, uh, it was then kind of uh, identified that the different organizations covering diff different uh, geographical areas um, were not recording their activities uh, uh, properly, if at all. Mm. Uh, no uh, rigorously kept statistical information. Um, so an attempt was made to 
rectify that. Uh, I can't regard it as being a particularly successful one. Um, but anyway, uh, in Edinburgh, um, the RNIB Scotland uh, had some old records. Um, most of them were in printed form, uh, annual reports and this kind of thing. But uh, they also had a register uh, which had been compiled very haphazardly, but compiled between 1903 and 1910. Um, uh, some entries were very detailed, some of them were very scant. Uh, mm. the, it was completed by the missionaries, I think there were about three of them by that time. Um, and uh, it seemed that the missionaries maybe knew some of the individuals uh, recorded very well, so there was a lot of details, but, and maybe others, it was just hearsay, but they would put it in because, you know, it, it built up the figures, made them look as if they had a lot more responsibilities if they could say, well, I've got 400 in my packs when they actually only knew 40, you know. Um, so we got this, uh, uh, we found this uh, register, uh, it was very incomplete, but uh, it seemed to offer possibilities uh, and um, uh, we subsequently decided to build a, a project around it. Um, RNIB Scotland uh, advertised for volunteers uh, uh, to be involved in some of the research and uh, we got a, a, a very good little team uh, together there. Um, some of them have sight loss or other impairing uh, 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 circumstances to work around. Um, and that was very much their intention to, um, to try and involve people, uh, particularly with sight loss, so that it was inclusive, it was getting away from this outsiders looking in. Um, and uh, a lot of research, uh, volunteers in particular, did a lot of research in the National Archives uh, of Scotland, mm -hmm. which would be looking trying to trace these individuals uh, through dust, uh, deaths, births and marriages, uh, through decennial census returns. Um, and uh, a lot of, there were all a lot of dead ends or very scant information, but um, we did get uh, people who we could do quite a lot of exploration on. Um, and one of my roles was to take these further and go to other archival sources and so forth to try and get more information on them. So uh, we built up several life stories. Um, the scope of the project, say the register covered 1903 to 1910, but uh, of course that's only a seven year period. Um, the people on that register, many of them lived until their 70s and 80s. So they had much longer lives than were just encapsulated in the period they were on the register. Uh, we also found that uh, the family network was very important. So we often had to look um, at uh, them growing up in their families, therefore looking at their siblings, their parents, sometimes even their grandparents. Um, and some of them lived to a grand old age. Some of them lived into the 1960s or thereabouts, uh, had their own families, uh, had their own networks. So although the register was from 1903 to 1910, the chronological scope of the project to get people's stories covered from, uh, uh, on the one hand, I think the, the earliest extremity was the late 18th century, 
and and at the other end it took us up to about the 1960s whereas you know where some people who had been recorded in the register maybe were in their 20s actually you know were still alive and active until they were in their 80s um, uh, so that was the that was the kind of core to it, if you like. Um, we ended up with about ten uh, case studies, which were showcased individually. Which I hope you know was was giving voice to people who had maybe never had voice in their lives, was telling their story. Um, and one of the, the, the outcomes of that, which I found very revealing, was that we ended up with 10 people. We ended up with 10 very different stories. Now, we didn't go looking for different stories and different experiences. We found 10 people with quality information. That information told us 10 different stories. So mm -hmm. there was no such thing as a typical blind person. No such thing, whatever. Uh, and I think that was one of the uh, the revelations of it, if you like, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a really important point. That there, it's almost impossible to generalize when it comes to the experiences of people with disabilities. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And I understand also that one of the outputs of this project, which was called Seeing Our History, was also a series of podcasts for the RNIB radio. Is that right? Yeah, um, the project was set up under the name uh, Seeing Our History, as you say. Um, the initial output was uh, um, uh, a book which was produced in a variety of formats, large, uh, well, as normal format, if you like, uh, large print, uh, braille, and so forth. We didn't um, uh, do any of the early forms of type, but uh, it was commented at one stage. If somebody wants the moon system, we'll have to do it in that. Because there's apparently still a few people about um, who use moon as their preferred um, method of uh, tactile print. So that book um, kind of told the story, uh, um, it, and we called it Feeling Our History. Uh, it was a kind of double meaning. On the one hand, uh, kind of inferred to, you know, feeling... Uh, tactile print as a you know as a means of communication the importance of that but also the feeling the emotions and so forth that go along with that um, and then as you say we went on and did podcasts um, uh, and we call that hearing our history um, and uh, the format of the podcasts was designed so that the various researchers who had uh, uh, work diligently through the whole project would be involved in telling about the, the people that they had discovered their stories, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so that was very good. Um, and, uh, and indeed, one of the early earlier radio outputs of it um, was uh, one of our colleagues made a, a radio broadcast and someone heard it and they, they, they tracked her down and said, oh, uh, my grandfather uh, was blind. I wonder if he's in the register. Um, and uh, we checked it out and sure enough, he was, this man was listed. Um, so we were able to give her, give her a little bit of information. Um, and she in turn, uh, um, he, this man had lost his sight quite well on 
in his life, but he'd still been a working man. Um, and uh, she was able to uh, produce uh, a couple of uh, very old photographs. Um, and the man had been a horseman. He, you know, he'd, 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 he'd handled horses in an agricultural environment. Uh, and uh, she produced uh, this photograph of her grandfather um, uh, with this horse, which had been all regaled and his tail pleated, obviously for exhibition and something, you know. So that was a good two-way journey. Um, and that lady also took part in, in the podcast talking about her grandfather. It's really interesting to hear about this because I think many of us are trying to do projects that are more engaged with the community. And certainly the way that your project was structured with the volunteers from the community and also these sort of built-in outreach formats like podcasts seems like a particularly good model that others can follow. So. Yes, uh, I think the, you know, the podcasts in particular uh, were broadcast uh, on what was at that time called Insight Radio, which is the RNIB's own radio station. Uh, I think it's now rebranded as uh, Connect Radio. Um, so if you like, it was taking the, re you know, the research uh, in particular to people who maybe don't know a lot about their own history, if, if that's uh, not, not taking it a step too far. Um, uh, yeah, it, it was intended, I mean, so much of what we as academics do, you know, we all read each other's work, but it's got a fairly... A, a limited audience at the end of the day. What do academics do uh, locked away in their ivory towers? And I think we're increasingly conscious of this, that um, um, you know, there have to be different types of output uh, um, so that uh, uh, people in the wider world, if you like, um, should know what we're doing and be drawn into it a little bit, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What's the point of any of it if no one knows that we're doing it and no one knows what our findings are, right? And I just, uh, in the spirit of sort of broader education for everyone, I do want to mention that if anyone is curious about the moon system, which was developed in about the 1840s by an Englishman, um, it is a system, like you mentioned, Ian, of race type, and it it's based sort of on the Roman alphabet that we normally use in English, but it's more kind of abstracted and simplified. So it would be a little bit easier for the fingers to detect. And there's actually a, a pretty decent Wikipedia article. I hate to mention Wikipedia as <laughs> a good academic, but I'll do it anyway. There's a pretty good Wikipedia article about it that I encourage people to, um, to go visit. And uh, in terms of those podcasts, you can still see or find the podcasts online at www.insightradio.co.uk slash seeing our history. So if anybody wants to follow oh, that. I'm impressed. <laughs> um, and certainly worth, you know, worth people's time to look into those. And um, when we first discussed it uh, with Insight Radio, um, they said, well, you know, how are we going to format it? How are we going to structure it? Uh, and they said, we uh, really need some kind of, you know, musical introduction to it. We didn't really know what, you know. Um, and one of the people, as a consequence of that, uh, we got involved um, was uh, a singer uh, called uh, Sarah Caltieri. Um, a very independent lady, uh, 
um, who has sight loss um, hates to be introduced as being a blind singer. Uh, I'm a singer, she says, and quite rightly so. And uh, I'd heard uh, Sarah sing at another event um, uh, some months earlier, um, and uh, I'd gone over and spoken to her, and we went our separate ways. I didn't know her name. Um, and then when this question came up, I thought, well, I wonder if this is something that she could, could help with. Uh, and I contacted her. I said, look, we spoke. Uh, I heard you singing. Uh, you don't by any chance uh, also write songs, do you? Oh, yes. I, yes, yes, I'm a singer-songwriter, you know. Um, so she undertook um, a, to write uh, an intro uh, for the podcasts. Um, we gave her a free hand to do that. Uh, uh, and uh, I think the only guidance we gave her was that... Uh, this had to be upbeat. We didn't want anything that spoke about poor blind people. That's not what this was about. We wanted it to be upbeat. Um, and because the podcasts were set uh, on people uh, who have been recorded in the Edwardian period, uh, we thought, you know, kind of music hall, that type of thing. Uh, and I gave Sarah a, a copies of some of the transcripts and stuff of the people that we've been looking at. Uh, and she used those transcripts and those uh, stories uh, to, to write her song. Um, and uh, I think the first time it was listened to, we thought, gosh, where's this come from, you know? And then we listened to it a second time and a third time. We thought, hey, we can see what she's doing here. This is clever. Um, so Sarah wrote the song, she wrote the music, uh, we had a formal launch uh, uh, of the podcast and she and uh, two other musicians uh, dressed up as uh, you know, music hall entertainers uh, uh, and, and, and that was an additional thing that came out of it, if you like, you know, and Sarah since going on and kind of developed her musical and indeed her acting career a bit further and uh, I hope she makes the big time sometime in the foreseeable future. That's wonderful that the podcast was really able to kind of bring the community together like that and continue on even well after the podcast officially ended, right? That's great. Yeah, and we got a lot of support. A lot of the records were held in the National Archives of Scotland, and they, they occupy a, it's a Georgian building that's got a fantastic building big dome inside it, uh, and uh, they were very supportive. And uh, and when the project was sort of coming together and we had a formal launch, um, uh, that's where we had it. And uh, uh, Sarah and the other two girls put on their performance there and everything. So, uh, I think uh, there may well be pictures of that uh, linked to the Insight radio podcast. I'm not sure. If not, I've got pictures. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll see if I can include a link to them in your bio with this podcast. That'll be wonderful. Yeah, I also understand that you worked on a project about uh, Glasgow's Royal Hospital for Sick Children. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, uh -huh. Well, th this was taking me away a little bit from what you might perceive as disability history, but... Uh, 
this post came up and uh, um, and I uh, ended up researching uh, this. Now, disability again obviously came into it when you started looking at children's experiences. Um, so in some ways that project, some of the stuff coming out of it, um, I subverted it a little bit, you know. <laughs> uh, um, and uh, I did that in the, uh, the Centre for the History of Medicine at the University of Glasgow, um, where I've sort of hung on as a research affiliate, a bit, like, a bit of a cuckoo in a nest, uh, uh, in more ways than one, because um, apart from uh, me getting a desk and refusing to budge from it, um, I do I do find myself explaining to people from time to time that uh, yes uh, I work in a, an arena um, which is looking at uh, medical history but I'm not a medical historian you know I'm a historian of disability uh, and I'm heavily heavily influenced by uh, the social model and other models as well you know rather than my colleagues who look on disability as a problem to be fixed. Um, which, of course, uh, many of us as historians of disability and certainly many people who identify as disabled uh, do not take kindly to. It's good that you're um, being a bit of a thorn in the medical establishment side. Good for you. Yeah. Square peg in a round hole, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Is there much um, public interest in preserving disability history in Scotland, you know, preserving sites of, of historic importance for disability? I mean, what is the disability history scene in Scotland like these days? Well, um, I mean, when you're talking about sites uh, um, that might be perceived as disability history, um, well, uh, I mean, we have people in Scotland who are histori historical geographers who are, um, uh, are very much interested in, uh, you know, institutional sites, if you like, um, that were set up in a certain way to uh, uh, cater for certain types of uh, uh, impairments and so forth. And that's particularly true uh, of mental institutions of uh, uh, which there were some really large uh, uh, places incarcerating people. Um, I mean, for example, well, one of the decennial censuses uh, that I looked at, I can't remember which year it was, but late Victorian period, um, there were something like 10 times as many people in Scotland incarcerated in mental institutions, mental asylums, than were held in uh, uh, prisons, jails and police cells. Now, that tells you something. Um, nowadays, uh, you know, many of these institutions remained active for a long time, uh, they did tend to be gradually, uh, uh, you know, change their personas from asylums and institutions uh, to hospitals, uh, particularly in the late 1940s when a National Health Service was uh, set up. Um, but their roles were maybe slower in changing. And uh, a lot of these old Victorian buildings uh, um, remained in use, some of them still do, but uh, many of them certainly remained in, in use until uh, 10, 20 years ago. Um, and when they've subsequently closed down, I think this has much been uh, because uh, 
you know, the costs of maintaining them and so forth. Now, uh, what's happened to these since then? Uh, some have become rather uh, noble and haunting ruins that have, uh, uh, you know, uh, just fallen apart and so forth. Um, uh, some others have been uh, rehabilitated as, uh, as upmarket apartments and uh, places like that. And uh, indeed, I went round an old district asylum a couple of years ago, and it's been made into executive apartments. And it's you know, quite a big uh, site, quite a lot of old Victorian sandstone buildings. And I did wonder, you know, as I wandered around, I thought, you know, people living here, they probably know that it was a hospital uh, in the 19th, uh, in the uh, 20th century, late 20th century. Wonder how many of them actually know before that it was a Victorian asylum. That their apartment was perhaps, uh, you know, a, an asylum ward uh, uh, housing 20 people, where maybe restraint was being exercised and so forth. Um, uh, yeah, it's just a question I asked in my mind. I suspect most of them don't appreciate that, they don't know that. It's not something that would appear in the uh, in the estate agent's brochure when they were selling these apartments, you know? <laughs> yeah, probably not. But at the same time, it is a, a very important piece of our history and we don't want to forget it lest we repeat it, right? So... Um, yeah, and the way they were used, as I say, uh, the historical geographers that look at these things, yeah, um, it wasn't just, these buildings were built to impress, but they weren't just built to impress. Uh, you know, there was, a, there was a kind of logic in terms of the management of them uh, as, to, as to how they were constructed. Uh, uh, and I mean, one that we had in Glasgow, uh, which hasn't survived, um, uh, the, the original Glasgow Asylum, which was uh, opened in 1814, um, was you know, was built uh, in the style of uh, Jeremy Bentham's uh, Panopticon, um, and yeah, that was it, 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 architecturally it must have been an incredible building, um, but it was all about surveillance and control, and separating and categorising different types of inmates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it's like a lesson in uh, in Foucault's discipline and punish right there. Yeah, yeah interesting. So I, we've kind of been hinting at this all along, but one of the questions I'm always curious about with people who do disability history is what keeps you going? You know, why do you feel compelled to continue working on this subject? Um, I think because I'm always learning. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, it's opened up a lot of doors in terms of uh, uh, getting to know a wider range of people, uh, including many people who... Um, identify as, uh, as disabled um, and understanding particularly from them uh, the things that are important and how we look at things uh, and that's something I don't think I'll ever stop learning from because I'm, you know, I'm, an, I'm an outsider looking in. Uh, people quite often will ask historians working in disability you know uh, why do you do this and uh, you know, there's all there's also always sort of unsaid questions about uh, that can kind of hint if you've got a disability, but I can't see it, or if there's someone in your family. And many people uh, doing disability history uh, are prompted and motivated by experiences 
such as that, either directly themselves or family members and so forth. Um, uh, others uh, are outsiders uh, like me, and uh, although I do now wear hearing aids, um, <laughs> so I feel I feel a bit you know a, a bit more authentic now. Um, but uh, you know, um, so it's what we can what we can learn. Uh, from human interaction, and certainly people I've met that I would never have met otherwise, uh, you know, become good friends, and uh, uh, and again, you know, um, they all have different perspectives. And, and one of the things, you know, it, disability history in some ways is seen, you know, it's a very kind of specialised um, uh, sub-discipline, you know. Uh, Oh yeah, that's a little quirky thing, you know, that you do. Um, but disability is everywhere. Disability will affect all of us at some point in our lives. Uh, unless we go out with a big bang, you know, we step off the street in front of a, a you know, a, a giant articulated lorry. Um, for the, the vast majority of us, we will experience disability in some form um, before we depart this mortal coil. Um, so we should be more aware of it. Um, you know, the, the only thing that makes it a, a appear to be a minority thing is that most people's experience of disability uh, will come in their later lives. And then they're not disabled, of course. They're just old, you know. It's acceptable to be old and have a disability. Um, when it's, it's a bit uh, kind of... Uh, uh, shocking when it's a child or a young person who should be, uh, uh, you know, whole and active. But it's it's everywhere. It's out there. Uh, we should not look on this as some kind of minority uh, activity or condition. Um, uh, that's one thing that I, I feel I've learned. Mm -hmm. So my final question for you is. What are you working on now? What's coming up next? Oh, um, a few things I'm kind of trying to put to bed at the moment, one of which you know well about, um, and that's uh, uh, this edited volume, uh, Disability in the Victorians, which has been on the go uh, forever, and uh, Caroline is uh, one of our contributors. Uh, so we hope that will appear soon, that we're at last on the, on the home straight with that, having encountered... Uh, one or two hurdles along the way that have made it a slow process. Um, right at the moment, uh, I'm also working with a, a colleague in Aberdeen uh, on looking at, uh, a, in my case, the Scottish National Institution. In her case, she's looking at uh, a, an English uh, asylum facility for children, um, and it's an attempt to be a comparative kind of thing but in fact the institutions are so different um, uh, there's not a lot to compare and that, that creates its own challenges. Um, the, the institution I'm looking at, um, I did some work on that this some years ago and it was material I knew existed um, and it was held uh, in a hospital facility um, and uh, I applied to get access to it. And uh, I was stalled and stalled and stalled uh, for about four years. Um, I demanded different things. 
um, and uh, I satisfied those. And then the final thing they asked for was an insurance indemnity, indemnity against what I don't know, uh, an insurance indemnity uh, for half a million pounds. And I thought, come on, you're, you're being silly now, you know. Um, and at that time, I was uh, teaching at the University of Stirling, and uh, I went to their research office and showed them the letter, and I said, look at this, you know. Uh, and they said, no problem, we'll take care of that for you. Um, so whatever it is they had to do, I don't know what was done, and, uh, and I finally got access uh, to this material. Um, uh, after about, while I was working on it, but uh, after about another four years, we finally managed to get the material released um, to be conserved uh, and put into the University of Stirling Archives uh, so that uh, researchers uh, uh, would have access to it in the future. Uh, so that was a long story. Um, but amongst that material, uh, there were bundles of applications um, for children to be admitted to the Scottish National Institution, which was a, a mental institution for uh, for children. And uh, what made the applications interesting, if you like, is that these are these, these were applications of not just children who were admitted to the institution but were also uh, the applications of children who were rejected. So we were getting paperwork for the ones who were turned away. And of course, then the question is, well, what happened? You know, um, an interesting thing too is, uh, and I found this with other institutions for, uh, particularly for sensory impairment, um, was that parents uh, in Victorian times were actually desperate to get their children into institutions. You would think they would be rather uh, traumatised by the very thought of it, but um, uh, there were actually less places in the, than there was demand for places. Um, and I think many of them did feel that the children would get an opportunity uh, in an institutional setting that they couldn't give them at home. Um, it went all like that. There were obviously cases where uh, a child might be disruptive at home. The other children were suffering because of that. Um, and they were quite happy for them to be uh, palmed off to someone else. Um, but, it, you know, it was interesting, interesting to see the views of, of parents and that they actually saw this as a positive thing, which uh, I rather suspect parents would not see it that way in most cases today. Um, so at the SNI, uh, the Scottish National Institution, is something that I've been working on uh, recently and hopefully that will also soon be put to bed, I hope. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you have a really fascinating and deep archive to work with, so I think we'll all wait eagerly in anticipation <laughs> of this oh, project. Kind. <laughs> so really very interesting and also really important to recognize the complex decisions that people made or had made for them. Um, when they entered or were rejected from an institution like this. So certainly yeah. that's more... And the different influences that, you know, that they were under, uh, different ethos at different times in history. Mm 
Yeah, and what opportunities were available or what discrimination existed or what um, restrictions mm -hmm. existed in the world outside of the asylum that made it extremely difficult for people with disabilities to live with their families, right? Mm -hmm. So all of these yeah. things are at play and you're doing very good work to draw attention to them, yeah. Well, thank you very much, you're so kind. <laughs> <laughs> you're so welcome. Ian, that's our last question. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Um, the only thing I think I would mention in the passing, uh, you know, I've kind of argued that disability is mainstream and disability history um, uh, should perhaps be seen as mainstream just as much as gender history or, uh, uh, you know, Marxist history, history of work economics or whatever. Um, uh, I, I think uh, we have seen the discipline grow incredibly uh, over the last 20 years. Um, and so many people are now doing it. Uh, so many different perspectives coming in. Uh, 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 it is growing, um, and I'm really gratified uh, that there's that much interest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I think uh, this is a field that's growing rapidly and new work coming out all the time that is ever complicating and adding depth and understanding to our our awareness of disability. So yeah, I'm similarly grateful for this, this growing field. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Ian. Such a pleasure to talk to you as usual. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll no. get a chance to catch up again soon. Love it. Thank, no, thank you, Caroline. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.